Many centuries ago, the great Buddha, in his compassion for the suffering of sentient life, issued his four noble truths, the first of which was, let's face it, all of life involves suffering, or sometimes it's called unsatisfactoriness. And the cause of this suffering, the sense of unsatisfactoriness, is craving, tanha, greedy attachment to things that are too small for us. So the way to overcome the sense of unsatisfactoriness about life is to overcome greedy attachments to things that are too small for you. And the way to do that is to follow the Eightfold Noble Path, which consists of right wisdom, right morality and behavior, right association, right meditation. In 2005, many centuries later, a neuroscience student and young philosopher at the University of Stanford, Stanford University, issued a book called The End of Faith, in which he sets forth what I like to call the four obvious truths of the new atheism. Uh, the first is that there is entirely too much unnecessary misery in the world, global terrorism, people flying airplanes into skyscrapers, beheadings, the sort of thing we're reading about in the news as much today as ever. And not without a touch of the Buddha's compassion, uh, this young man wanted to get beneath all this unnecessary suffering that's taking place in our world. Instead of identifying the cause of suffering with desire, he identified the cause of suffering as faith. What does he mean by faith? Faith, he says, is belief without evidence. What he means by evidence, I'll get to a little bit later on. Every instance of faith is dangerous, even the most innocuous beliefs. For example, the Catholic belief in the Eucharistic presence of Christ. If you allow the slightest opening in your consciousness for faith, sooner or later that slight opening will turn into an abyss, and that abyss will play host to the most monstrous forms of insanity, such as those we're witnessing in the world today, he said. So, parallel to the Buddhist third noble truth, the solution to all this unnecessary suffering going on in the world is to rid the world of every instance of faith, no matter how innocent. And that means that the modern liberal tolerance of faith is not working. Because sooner or later, even though you believe people can have any, any sort of beliefs they want, sooner or later those beliefs are going to become dangerous. So let's cut off the possibility of unnecessary evil and suffering at the place where it enters into our consciousness, and that place is faith. By tolerating freedom of faith, Sam Harris says, we are all accomplices in evil. So what is the fourth obvious truth? The fourth obvious truth is not to get rid of faith by violence, that's not gonna help, but rather fill up your mind with reason, and especially with scientific reason. If you do that, then eventually faith will dissolve. Faith will disappear as the spirit of science spreads throughout the cultures of the world. In 2006, a year later, Richard Dawkins, who's probably the best known evolutionist writing in the world today, wrote a book called The God Delusion, 
in which he agreed with everything that, that, that uh, Sam Harris said, the four noble, fourth obvious, obvious truths of the new atheism. He adds that religion is supposed to make us moral, but it doesn't provide very good role models, starting with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who, according to Dawkins, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And the Christian God is not much better. Here he quotes Thomas Jefferson, who said the Christian God is a being of terrific character, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. But then Dawkins backs off a little bit, says, well, it's unfair to, talk, to target this monstrous notion of deity. The God hypothesis, he says, should not stand or fall with its most unlovely instantiation, Yahweh, nor his insipidly opposite Christian face, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, let's start with something more defensible, he says. The hypothesis, the God hypothesis that he talks about in his book and eventually exposes as a delusion is the, is the idea of a superhuman, supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us, in other words, an intelligent designer. This for him is the apex of Christian theology, belief in the designer deity, the loveliest instantiation of theism. So let's work with that. Does that work? Is that acceptable? Well, a perfect designer would have created a world without design flaws, wouldn't he? But evolutionary biology, the natural sciences in general, have taught us that there are no such things as adapt perfect adaptations. The world is full of de de uh, design flaws. Therefore, God, the intelligent designer, cannot possibly exist. Furthermore, the whole notion of God and all religions can be explained in terms of evolutionary theory as adaptations that our ancestors engaged in in order to make them feel a little bit more at home in a very tough world. So evolution has done away with God. Now you can be an intellectually fulfilled atheist after Darwin. A year later, Christopher Hitchens wrote his book, God is Not Great, and the subtitle of that book is How Religion Poisons Everything. Hitchens says in the book things like belief in God is the root cause of unspeakable immorality. And furthermore, religion, he's basing his ideas especially on Freud, is an intellectually indefensible idea. Whereas the other new atheists, if there's anything new about the new atheism, there's a little bit of more of a Darwinian edge to things. Hitchens is still stuck back in Vienna with Freud. And Freud is the main reason, the main intellectual foundation for his atheism. And he goes on to say, atheism is the most favorable foundation for moral behavior and intellectual honesty. Faith in God needs to be replaced by science and religion. So all the new atheists share this idea that faith is belief without evidence. And that faith in the sense of belief without evidence is the cause of all the unspeakable evils that the world is experiencing today. Daniel Dennett, who's considered to be one of America's foremost philosophers, completely agrees. He wrote a book called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, which he starts out with the assumption that science has destroyed the idea of God. And since God doesn't exist, therefore, why do religions persist? Why doesn't God go away? 
There must be, since God doesn't exist, there must be a purely natural explanation for why religions persist in the minds of so many people around the world. His argument is religion can best be explained, again, in evolutionary terms. Religion has helped our species adapt and survive in the world, and that's why it still lives on. It's been propensities for religious illusions are passed on in our genes, which migrate from one generation to the next, compelling us, or at least persuading us, to believe in God. But now that we have a scientific understanding of how the God idea arose, we can dispense with it as pure fiction. And he believes, Dennett does, that religion will eventually disappear as scientific understanding advances. There are other people who would like to be included within the four horsemen of the new atheism. One of these is P.Z. Myers, professor of biology at the University of Minnesota Morris, who has one of the most popular blogs on the internet. And in that blog, he talks about how he carried out what he calls the great desecration. He took a communion wafer, uh, which someone pilfered from a Catholic Eucharistic service, as he tells the story. He says, I pierced this, this host with a rusty nail. I hope Jesus' tetanus shots are up to date. And then I simply threw it in the trash with coffee grounds and banana peelings. Then he took the nail and drove it through a page of the Quran. And just to be democratic, he drove the nail through a page from Dawkins, the God Delusion, even though he completely agrees with Dawkins. Why did he do this? To make the point that nothing, absolutely nothing, must be held sacred. And since it's faiths that keep the sense of the sacred alive, faiths must disappear if we're going to have a better world. I mention P.C. Myers because Richard Dawkins posted this entry to the blog. Congratulations, P.C., on an eloquent gesture, and thank you for including the pages from The God Delusion. It's only a book. If I had any doubts about the rightness of what you did, they were dispelled by reading the fatuous, pathetic, ignominious, abjectly stupid protests of Catholics writing in protest. Either they really believe the wafer is Jesus, in which case they are idiots, or they don't, in which case they are hypocritical hysterics. Either way, they deserve to be insulted. Congratulations on doing so. So this gives you a kind of sampling of the sort of discussion that surrounds the idea that faith must disappear. So how are we to react? How are readers uh, to, to react to these very, very popular books? Well, one reaction, of course, is to agree with them, and a lot of people do. The books have been really, really runaway bestsellers, all of them that I've talked about. Or we could exchange insults. There's a lot of that that goes on on the blogs. Uh, turn the other cheek, show compassion. Well, the last thing they want is compassion. They think that's condescending. They think we are the ones who need compassion. We could ask if there's anything really new about the new atheist. Uh, for the most part, my own judgment, to make a long story short, is not much. Uh, you, you have the same sort of thing from Bertrand Russell and, and others much, much earlier, and some of much more powerful. I, I tend to refer to the new atheist as soft core atheist in compared to the hardcore atheist that I taught my students in the Problem of God course at Georgetown, Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, and people like that. Much more challenging. But anyway, you could also converse about the question of which God are you talking about? Um, I always tell people I agree with Dawkins' atheism uh, because I would, if that was my idea of God, I would 
want nothing to do with that either. But that doesn't get you very far uh, with them either. Uh, you could respond point by point to the new atheist moral outrage against religion for all the atrocities, crusades, and beheadings that have taken place in the name of God. And that would be a good place to have a conversation. And that would mean we would admit guilt where necessary, as the Second Vatican Council did in that quote I had on the opening slide. But it would also, such a conversation, involve recalling the atrocities committed by uh, atheist dictators of the 20th century, Mao, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot. If you got into sheer body counts, you'd have to raise some interesting questions. What has caused the most uh, monstrous kind of uh, slaughter of individual persons? Uh, that would be an interesting discussion too. But those don't get very far. Uh, a good question to ask is uh, the Dostoevsky question. If God doesn't exist, then isn't anything and everything permitted? If there are no standards of right and wrong, uh, as atheism, according to Jean-Paul Sartre, implies, then wouldn't that leave uh, open any possibilities as far as human actions are concerned? So that's a very good, good, good question. But uh, my sense has been that debating the morality of theism versus that of atheism is always going to be inconclusive. Because no matter what side you're on, you're going to always have one more item to add to your catalog of reasons for or against atheism and theism. So as an academic, my proposal is that we examine the new atheism from the point of view of the intellectual assumptions that underlie it. And it's not really very difficult to find what these are. Scientism, uh, I think, is is the intellectual foundation of the new atheism. And that has been around for a long time. What is scientism? Scientism is a belief itself. It's the belief that science, scientific method, modern scientific method, empirical inductive method, is the only reliable way to get truth, the only way toward reality, which would mean for them, for advocates of scientism, that there is absolutely no room for anything like faith. So that's where they're coming from when they talk about how intellectually we need to get rid of faith and then everything will get better uh, throughout the world. They're thinking, the thinking of scientism in general can be summarized this way. Science is said to be based on evidence. Faith is belief without evidence. Science, therefore, is objective, whereas faith is subjective. You just make it up. And therefore, science is reasonable. It's the paradigm of reason in the new atheism, whereas faith is completely unreasonable. So it's on the basis of this dichotomization of faith and science, the whole edifice of the new atheism is based. And so to that extent, it's really not new at all. Scientism has been around for a long, long time, beginning with the 17th and 18th century. If you doubt that people actually avowedly embrace scientism, uh, listen to this quotation from Richard Dawkins. It may be, he says, that humanity will never reach complete understanding, but if we do, I venture the confident prediction that it will be science, not religion, that brings us there. And if that sounds like scientism, so much the better for scientism. His fellow atheist, Bruce Scheinman, says, look, uh, he, he says, it is scientism, not science, 
that is opposed to theism. And scientism is a belief. Scientism is little more than atheism masquerading as science. So that leads us then to ask a couple questions. Is scientism reasonable? And what do you mean by evidence? Uh, those are the two questions I think you have to ask when you look at the intellectual framework of the new atheism. First then, is scientism reasonable? I'm not the first to point out that scientism is, according to many philosophers, especially Catholic philosophers, and Christian philosophers in general, scientism has been pointed out many, many times, is logically speaking, self-refuting, self-contradictory. And if that's the intellectual foundation of the new atheism, then it's built on very sandy soil. Scientism says, take nothing on faith, according to this assessment of scientism, and yet it takes faith to accept scientism. So on that basis, scientism is self-refuting. In my own conversations with new atheists, whenever I bring this up, I'm met pretty much with stony silence. But I, I personally don't think there's any getting around the fundamental irrationality, self-contradictory nature of scientism. After all, there are no sets of scientific experiments that you can set up to demonstrate scientifically that science is the only road to truth. Uh, if even setting up those experiments, you would be believing that science is the only road to truth. Furthermore, as we all know, there are other kinds of ways of getting in touch with other dimensions of reality. Interpersonal knowledge is necessary to get to the reality of another person. If you approach that person scientifically, object, objectifying him or her, analytically reducing him or her to atoms and molecules, you're not going to get to the reality of the person. You have to surrender, you have to make yourself vulnerable in order to get in touch with another person, especially in a relationship of love. In aesthetic knowing, in coming into contact with beauty, we have to relax and allow ourselves to be carried away by beauty, according to the philosopher uh, Michael Polanyi. That's quite different from the kind of controlling, experimental control that you have to have to do science. And so if there is such a thing as religious knowing, it would be analogous to interpersonal knowing, especially if we think of God as a thou rather than an it. If you believe in a personal God, then wouldn't interpersonal engagement be the appropriate channel with which to contact or be contacted by uh, the reality of God? So none of these sort of discussions uh, have I seen. I, I was asked to write a book on uh, new atheism, and, and I read as thoroughly as I could, and th these kind of considerations uh, never come up. Furthermore, and this is my main point, and it's really why my main interest is in science and religion, so discussion of the new atheism gives me an opportunity to point out something about science that we have to keep in mind whenever we talk about the relationship between science and theology or science and religion. And that's that scientists as persons also need and cannot help but having a faith, a trust. The New Testament uses the word pistis. 
for faith, but it also implies trust, engagement, confidence, surrender. Something like a surrender is going on tacitly in the minds of all good scientists, even though most of them do not reflect upon this. The tacit faith commitments of a scientist can be excavated if we look just very briefly at how science works. The scientist is someone who looks at a certain range of empirically available data, a controlled range of data, in search of some insight or intelligibility into that data. And when the scientist has found this insight or this insight has occurred, it gets formulated in what we call hypotheses and in a grander way in what we refer to as theories. This is the fun part of science, the part, the part of science that's always interesting and engaging, the context of discovery. But in the mind of every good scientist, there's a little voice that keeps saying, not every bright idea is a true idea. This, according to the Jesuit philosopher who's written an incomparable philosophy of science called Insight, which is 800 pages long, and I'm condensing it for your benefit into one minute, <laughs> so you don't have to read the book. <laughs> it's 800 pages. Um, then this little voice says, not every bright idea is a true idea. What that implies is that there is some engagement already with the great value of truth that leads the scientist to say to himself or herself, not every bright idea is a true idea. Then the hard work of science begins. Testing whether your hypothesis or theory does accurately and truthfully correspond to the data. And this is a never-ending, arduous, often painful part of the whole scientific enterprise. Testing and, if at times, maybe more often than not, revising your theory and sometimes even abandoning it altogether. Why? For the sake of a great value, truth. So this is, a, in a nutshell, what's going on in the personal life of every good scientist, even if they don't reflect upon it. What I want to point out is that there is a kind of tacit set of faith commitments that are already operative to get started as well as to continue the adventure of science. Faith, first of all, as Professor Towns of the University of California, inventor of the laser who died recently, used to say, faith that the universe is intelligible. This is something you can't prove before scientifically and, 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 and then pretend that it's through science that you've come to recognize that the universe is intelligible. No, the mind is already engaged with the value of meaning or intelligibility long before the scientific process formally begins. Faith that the universe is intelligible, belief that truth is worth seeking, that's not something that comes easily to everybody which shows how the life of virtue, the life of commitment to what is good and to what is true, is not irrelevant to the whole scientific enterprise. But these are things that the new atheists never reflect on. Belief in the rightness of honesty, of sharing your results honestly with other people, of not cheating. 
that's something that doesn't always happen either. Some scientists are so committed to the ingenuity of their hypothesis and theory that they'll fudge the data. This happens almost every day, and scientific journals are often recalling articles that were written too soon. Uh, it's, it's human to want to believe what will give one prestige within the scientific community, but it's not always honest. So good science requires a commitment to this value of honesty. And also, something we don't think about very often is we have to trust in the capacity of our own minds to recognize meaning, intelligibility, and to be able to make judgments about what is true and what is false. We have to trust our own minds. Uh, if you yourself right now are doubting what I'm saying, it's because you trust your own minds to criticize what I'm saying. You can't help. So to be human means to be already engaged in a life of faith. There's no living without leaping, or no knowing without going, as one of my friends says. Trust in your mind. So we have these tacit faith commitments. Then where, if there's a place for theology at all within the realm of human understanding and knowledge, where would we locate theology with reference to what goes on in science? Uh, again, this is something that the new atheists don't consider. Not here. Don't place the idea of God as a hypothesis among other hypotheses. But that's exactly the trick that Richard Dawkins wants the reader to agree with. He has a whole chapter in The God Delusion called The God Hypothesis, in which he locates the whole idea of God as an obsolete scientific hypothesis which can now be placed into a competitive relationship with, say, evolutionary theory, and Darwin will win and God will lose. So the whole New Atheist Project, from an intellectual point of view, depends upon your agreeing with them that the idea of God is something in the same order as, but not as good as, a set of scientific hypotheses. What the New Atheist looks for is evidence of the existence of God in this range of empirical data. Of course, God does not show up there, therefore God does not exist. Every respectable theologian that I've ever read, going way, way back, would argue, if they were here today in conversation with the new atheists, that religion and theology are not in the business of providing anything like scientific information. That's a death sentence for theology to try to debate the scientific merits of the idea of God. So it raises the question, well then where would be a more appropriate way to bring in theological discussion? Theology's place, I would say, is to respond to what we might call limit questions. The notion of limit questions comes from the philosopher Stephen Tolman, who I think taught for a while here at the University of Chicago and it has been articulated very well by uh, another Chicago scholar, David Tracy, who a uh, member of the Divinity School, now retired. He talks a lot about the place where, where theology comes in. It's not in competition with scientific ideas. And if there's no competition, then there could be no conflict, uh, no opposition. So what does theology do? It responds to limit questions, such as, why is the universe intelligible at all? 
Before that, it will engage in the biggest limit question of all. Why are there beings rather than nothing? That these are questions that science does not deal with. But science does have to have a commitment to the intelligibility of the universe if it's going to get off the ground at all. Another limit question, why, why is truth worth seeking? What makes honesty that you have to have when you do science unconditionally right, no matter what? And why should we trust our minds? How will we go about justifying the trust that we have in our minds? Bernard Lonergan's book, Insight, gives you 700 or 800 pages as to how and every right you have to do that, which I can't summarize adequately now. But uh, these are questions that are not scientific questions. They are questions that arise in another horizon of inquiry. A horizon means anything, the whole field of data, things that you can see from a determinate vantage point or point of view. What you need when you do theology is a shift of horizons from science. Science tries to locate the totality of being within the horizon of kinds of questions science asks. Whereas when you talk about theology, you have a whole different set of questions, bigger questions, ultimate questions, which are not questions that science is properly wired to deal with. Furthermore, not only is theology not opposed to science, theology can actually provide a worldview or a metaphysics that can justify the scientist's faith commitments. Theology has very good reasons, very good justifications for our trusting that the universe is intelligible. Namely, it's grounded in an infinite intelligence. That's a very good way of justifying, therefore, your trust in the intelligibility of reality. The same with truth and goodness as well. Okay, so that's, that's one thing to ask about. What, is scientism therefore reasonable? Science, science itself, not just scientism, but science itself requires this kind of faith commitment and trust in the intelligibility and truth uh, and so forth of the world is something that actually overlaps with theological commitments. So there's no commitment, no contradiction at all. Now the other question that arises, is faith devoid of evidence? Which is the point that all the new atheists make. Faith is belief without evidence, therefore it is unacceptable. Well, is it necessarily the case that faith is devoid of evidence? What the new atheists are doing is saying the same thing that Bertrand Russell said many, many years ago uh, when he quipped that if on the off chance that he, an agnostic he called himself, after he dies, comes face to face with God and God asks him, uh, Bertie, why, why didn't you believe in me? Uh, Russell says, I would simply reply to God, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And so it raises the question, what is meant by evidence, both in the case of Russell and in the case of the new atheism? Well, again, I'm not the first to say that there are different kinds of evidence. And the evidence that science deals with 
is not within the same horizon of inquiry that the evidence that theology and religion are concerned about. There is, for example, what you might call spectator evidence. That's evidence that is publicly accessible. Everybody can see it if you just open your eyes. It's available to our senses or at least to instruments that extend the power of our senses through microscopes and telescopes and so forth. It's evidence that is subject to experimental control and above all measurement and mathematical understanding. In other words, it's objectifiable evidence, the evidence that I as a subject can see out there in the objective world beyond my subjectivity. It's the only kind of evidence, in other words, that scientism allows for. And since obviously God does not fall within that horizon or that field of evidence, God does not exist. So you see how much depends upon a very simple, fundamental prior belief that science and scientific evidence alone can be trustworthy. But all the great traditions of religion, and even many in philosophy, have talked about another kind of evidence which we can call transformative evidence. Now, that's the kind of evidence that you can't come in contact with unless you go through a process of personal transformation as a condition for coming into contact with that evidence. And all the great traditions that things which are most real, things which are most meaningful, things which are most important, by definition are things that you can't get in touch with unless you allow yourself to be grasped by this reality. Personal transformation is required, and that personal transformation means allowing yourself to be comprehended, to be grasped by that which you are sensing as carrying you away in one way or another. Paul Tillich, the great Protestant theologian, defines faith as the state of being grasped by that which is of ultimate importance. So being grasped rather than grasping is essential to contacting the realities that religions and theologies are talking about. It's inaccessible, therefore, to spectator evidence by definition. And that's why you have to undertake perhaps a set of religious exercises, meditation, prayer, living a life of humility, learning gratitude, sometimes being silent, and above all, especially in the prophetic religious traditions, learning to wait. How often when you read the Psalms do you see that expression? Wait, wait for the Lord. Only those who wait will not be put to shame. And what I found, not just in the New Atheism, but in much contemporary Christian theology and its conversation with science, is a kind of impatience, a kind of a refusal to wait, a kind of almost sometimes tantrum-like demand that if God exists, this world should be perfectly designed. It should have started off in perfect design and never should have gotten messed up in the first place. So in, in almost all the traditions, there's something of waiting. In Zen Buddhism, for example, you have to apprentice yourself to a Zen master, sometimes for many years, before your whole, whole being is transformed to a, a condition where you're open to satori, to enlightenment, to freedom, to seeing reality as it is. And that's why 
Transformative evidence can only be expressed, and I shouldn't even use the word only, must be expressed symbolically, metaphorically, and logically. We live in a time when many people from the scientific, I should say scientistic community, lampoon religions for using the soft, fuzzy, vague language of symbols and religions, and especially metaphors, as though somehow metaphors are less able to put us in touch with what is really real than clear and distinct ideas are. So the point is that transformative evidence is not gathered cheaply. And when you think about it, why would we want evidence that makes the difference between life and death, between meaning and meaninglessness? Why, why would we want that to come as cheaply as the solution to a specific scientific inquiry or experiment or the conclusion to a syllogism or to a mathematical equation? But yet that's the demand that scientism puts upon the religious communities of the world, that they display their evidence with the same mathematical clear clarity that science idealizes. Just to use an analogy, and this one comes from Professor Paul Moser, who teaches here in Chicago at Loyola University. He notices that science tells us that the Earth is bombarded constantly by a whole spectrum of wavelengths from various waves from the radio electronic spectrum. But that if there is a message somehow embedded in any of those communications, we would need a scanning device that has a lot of knobs and tuners on it. And each knob would have to be tuned precisely in order to pick up any potential message that is flowing through the channel of this transmission. Suppose then that the universe carries a deeper meaning, which all the religions maintain, that there's something deep, something going on in reality, in the cosmos, in history, in the universe, which is not easily detectable. And it's deeper than what science and spectator knowledge can detect. So you would have to have your scanning device very finely tuned to detect such a, such a message. And the scanning device would be our own lives, willingness to undergo personal transformation. But scientism and the new atheism, Professor Moser says, play God in demanding that we tune in only to what can be gathered by the spectator channel. So any evidence of a personal God, Moser says, would not show up on this knob to which the scientism of the new atheism wants us to, to fixate on. And scientific method is simply not wired to detect ultimate reality and meaning. Now I want to, to, to make it clear uh, that I'm a person who absolutely loves science. I've dedicated my life to studying the relationship of science to theology, and I have no problem with any carefully gathered scientific evidence. And in a sense, what I want to do is to protect science from the new atheism, 
The new atheists want to make science, the spectator channel, the only available channel. In doing so, they are overburdening the discipline of science, which is, properly speaking, a self-limiting way of looking at some aspects of reality. Richard Dawkins has one channel in his thinking, and that's the scientific channel, the spectator channel. And he is, uh, tends to mock anybody who looks at reality through any possible other way of detecting reality and meaning. Here's another analogy. This one was suggested by the perennial philosopher E.F. Schumacher. I'm adapting it here. But take any book, take a page from the Bible, and suppose a monkey looks at that page. What will the monkey see? The monkey will see black marks on a white page. Um, take a child who's just learned the letters of the alphabet and looks at that same page. Uh, the child will see a treasure trove of letters of a code. Or take an adolescent who looks at the Bible for the first time. And what will the adolescent see? A lot of stories. Not, not all of them very interesting, but narratives. What does the new atheist look for? The new atheist looks into the Bible and indeed into all religious literature for obsolete scientific hypotheses that can be discredited now in view of the ideas of Darwin and, and other great modern scientists. Or take an initiate to the tradition, someone who has just been swept away by what he or she has experienced, not just in the literature, but in the whole community of people that have been transformed by this literature. The initiate will experience the same thing, but will see a transformative meaning there that was not seen before. Am I, how much time do I have? Do I, am I, am I, I'm fine? Phew. Two or three minutes, okay. But the best example of this was St. Augustine. Uh, before St. Augustine converted uh, to Christianity, seriously, even though he'd been born uh, in a Christian world, he, because of his skill as a rhetorician and an educator, familiar with the writings of Cicero and other great stylists, when he looked at the New Testament written in common Koine Greek, he thought it was rather pathetic. And he tended to mock it until after his conversion. And then after his conversion, he went back and looked at the scriptures in all their crudity. And he found a transformative wisdom there that he had not seen before. This notion of transformative wisdom has completely dropped out of contemporary intellectual conversation, or almost completely. Medievals had a notion of truth as adequatio, the adequacy of the mind with reality. Adequatio was not something that came automatically or just by being bright or knowing the letters of a code. Now, adequatio comes only as a result of a whole personal life of conversion and transformation, which is never over. Look at what Jesus says. He asks, in a sense, who, who will see God? And his answer is the pure of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they're the ones who will see God. And how do you become pure of heart? That's not easy either. 
His answer, unless you turn and become like little children. That's the transformation that has to be gone through so that one receives the world and oneself as a gift, opens oneself in gratitude to the goodness of God. So a change of heart, not just in mind, is required in all the great traditions, including until recently even philosophy. Let me just close with reference to a literature that also featured the poverty or emphasized how, how impoverished spectator evidence is, and that's ancient philosophical Taoism, which we associate with Lao Tzu, who lived probably somewhere in the fifth or sixth century BC, whose ideas are recorded in the Tao Te Ching and a number of poetic uh, aphorisms, paragraphs. In philosophical Taoism, ultimate reality, that which gives shape and form and being to everything else is called the Tao. Today's scholars spell it D-A-O, uh, traditionally it was spelled T-A-O, it's pronounced Tao, the Tao. Lao Tzu says, gaze at it, gaze at the Tao. There's nothing to see. It is called the formless. Heed it. There's nothing to hear. It is called the soundless. Grasp it. There is nothing to hold on to. It is called the immaterial. Invisible. It cannot be called by any name. It returns again to nothingness. It's completely hidden, and yet it's all-powerful in its hiddenness. And then the author of the Tao Te Ching, Te Ching goes on to say, uh, excuse the non-inclusive language of this translation, when a superior man hears of the Tao, he immediately begins to embody it, lives the life of grace, we might say in Christian context. When an average man hears of the Tao, he half believes it, half doubts it. When a foolish man hears of the Tao, he laughs out loud. If he didn't laugh, it wouldn't be the Tao. You can make your own translation of that meaning in terms of the new atheism. Thank you very much. Thank you.